Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited today to dive into multilingual learners, English language learning, and a lot of the work that my guest has been doing in that space. I'm joined today by Dana Gastic-French, who is the founder and CEO of Upriver Education. She's been doing a lot of work helping folks understand how to breakthrough in terms of their English language competencies. We're going to talk about all that stuff in a bit. But before we do any of that, I want to welcome Dana to the show. Dana, welcome to Trending in Education. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me today. It's delightful to have you. We always begin our episodes by getting to know our guests a little better in their own words. Can you catch us up on your origin story, how you got to this point in your professional life? Yeah, absolutely. I was always a student of language, I would say. I think that's probably my primary place where I was fascinated as a child learning about language. I studied abroad during college in Santiago, Chile, and it was there that I first started teaching English to international bankers. And it was just really fun watching that experience and experiencing it for myself as, you know, a person trying to learn in a language that wasn't my first. Mm -hmm. I went to college at the Catholic University in Santiago and missed a lot, you know, when I was attending lecture and felt a lot like a fish out of water. In fact, I remember one day a group of college students that were my contemporaries came up to me walking on my way to class. And in, they had a video camera, you know, it was the 90s. So they had this really large thing on their shoulder. And they said, hey, in Spanish, tell us a joke. We're recording jokes. And I said to them in my Spanish, you know, unless it's in English, like I'm not going to be able to give you anything that translates. And, you know, I fancied myself a person who was like, you know, grew up with that New York, New Jersey snark. You know, I got the sarcasm. I understood like a good play on words. And I had none of that. I had none of myself to offer. Mm. And that just started to grow this empathic kind of process and road that I went down in terms of what it means to be something other than the mainstream, right? And exist in in a place and a space where you weren't the kind of the navel, right? Or the central archetype. Mm -hmm. So when I finished school, I went on to graduate school. I studied neurolinguistics and did a lot of language in the brain. Mm. I got interested in the science side. And then I started to teach as an English as a second language teacher north of Boston mm -hmm. in an urban district where we had a lot of students coming in, both newcomers to the country and students who were born here and needed some help to sort of access the English-only education they were receiving. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I started to notice things that could be done differently. I would say my story is one of seeking how to impact more positively the educational experience of multilingual learners. Mm -hmm. And I thought, ooh, you know, I would see my classroom teaching colleagues ask questions, and I thought, ooh, if I could only be in an instructional coaching role, I could help them and answer these. And lo and behold, that role came about and I went into it and I got to do that. And then from there, I had a new vantage where I looked and saw, oh, you know what, if I could control the schedule, perhaps we could provide more equitable access to some of these specials and these other important pieces of their learning day. Mm -hmm. And I became a supervisor. And on it went until I became the district level director. And it was 
a real kind of learning experience for me because what I realized as I climbed that ladder, thinking I could leverage more impact as I did, was that I got further from the work that I loved Mm -hmm. and that I was so good at. And Upriver for me came about as really a move to try to get back closer to the work that I loved, the work that I felt that was more in my kind of zone of genius, as Gay Hendricks talks about. And in some ways, maybe I suffered a little from, you're familiar with the Peter principle, right? Right? Like we get promoted to our first level of incompetence. And I don't know that I would have called myself incompetent in that role, but certainly further from from the area where I could leverage the best impact, which Mm. was working with teachers and learners and really trying to create systems and spaces that work for everyone and and build the most success. Mm -hmm. And so upon that realization, I decided it was time to make a big move and get back into where I felt I could serve the best, which was working directly with schools and school systems and educators around maximizing outcomes for multilingual students. Because it's not just that teaching needs to be fixed or adjusted. It's not just that administration needs to make changes. It's a system. Mm-hmm. And so upriver was really born of that that concept that we need to move upriver effectively and think upriver in order to prevent the need for intervention downriver. Awesome. Yeah. And you let me know this is a Desmond Tutu quote. Yeah. I've, I've heard the analogy about moving upriver to solve the problem. But understanding that that ultimately came from Desmond Tutu, which I like quoting luminaries. So thank you for imparting that perspective to me. So you're in a space now where you're teaching teachers and tapping into this population of both multilingual learners and then ESL teachers. Those populations are both interesting in a lot of ways. Folks who may not be as close to the domain as you might not understand some of the intricacies and complexities about those populations. Can you walk us through the profile of the multilingual learner first and then get into a little bit more about who an English language teacher is and how they maybe are a little bit different from the profiles of some of the other educators that are out there in the system? Yeah, absolutely. So a multilingual learner, and I think education in general, we're jargon-centered. The name with which we refer to this population has shifted a lot. And that comes out of our growing awareness of asset-based thinking. You know, originally we referred to many students who were here learning English so that they can access content as limited English proficient. And I'm sure your audience can understand that defining someone by the word limited might not, you know, be super beneficial, right? Mm. So as we move into a more asset-based approach, the name has shifted. They've been, you know, English language learners, English learners, multilingual learners. You'll hear emergent bilingual, emergent multilingual. Mm. And really that's growing out of a goal for multilingualism as the gold standard. As we know in the professional world, to be multilingual is a true gift. There are cognitive benefits to multilingualism. Cognitive disorders stave off a lot longer in multilingual individuals. There are greater levels of empathy recorded in multilingual. There's a lot of real solid research out there about the benefits of multilingualism. And so we want the name to reflect that. There's a lot of movement now to introduce multilingual learning at a pre-K, early childhood education, where 
to your point about being asset based in the thinking, children who are growing up, you know, in America, but maybe English is not their first language at home, are actually developing skills and competencies that primarily English speaking kids are now getting added to their early childhood education. It's an interesting example of where that acid-based shift has actually taken place to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what we're seeing now is where those two worlds used to be quite siloed. We saw, you know, this real strong interest in world languages. And then we would see students, multilingual students, kind of kept from access to world language courses because they needed to develop English at that time, for example. Yeah. Whereas now there are a lot of movements around seals of biliteracy many states are taking on to really celebrate and look at it from both ends, right? Mm -hmm. Where we say, yeah, monolingual English speakers need access to world languages and we need to maintain and celebrate and support the home languages of multilingual students while they're learning English and not see that as a barrier so much as opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then what about the ESL teachers, the population that you know you grew out of and now you're yeah. getting back in touch with them with the work you're doing at Upriver? Yeah, so I support two populations of teachers primarily. The ESL teacher who's gone into this field typically explicitly to help multilingual learners to gain those keys to access the content, which in an English-only system would be the English, and the content classroom teachers who, for the majority of their day, have these students in front of them. And typically, depending on state regulations, but typically they have to do what we call sheltering their content. So let's say I teach seventh grade algebra. I have a student who's learning English in my class. They're with me because I am the content teacher, the expert in that. And that's where they should be, right? Because they should be hearing content from an expert. Mm -hmm. But what we do is help that teacher develop an awareness of the language they're using as a vehicle mm -hmm. to their content. Mm -hmm. They like to say all content has a vehicle. When I was a student in Chile, and taking art history, Spanish was the vehicle and images in the slideshow, of course. But in an English only school system, right, there are dual language systems where that's an exception. But in an English only system, English is the vehicle. So the content teacher may not have been necessarily trained to identify the language they're requiring the student use to comprehend and to demonstrate their understanding of content. Mm -hmm. So we help them to do that so that they can bridge more connection to the content for the student. Mm. And then we also work with ESL teachers and teams around really clarifying their role. I find there's a lot of confusion in the roles of teachers. Often we see ESL teachers chasing content to try to keep students afloat rather than giving them those English skills because they feel you know, that they need to do everything in their power to help students keep from falling behind. And then we see content teachers not necessarily clear on how they can be a teacher of language when they don't feel necessarily that, that they have the training to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then to your previous point about jargon, another trend that I've noticed in education is this idea of siloing where that's mm -hmm. not my job. That's someone else's responsibility. Right. So the idea that ultimately it's a bit more of a team teaching model is the aspiration here, I would imagine, where the 
English language learning teacher, the multilingual learners are getting mm -hmm. access to the dedicated focus of actually acquiring the English skills from the ELL, ESL teacher. But then mm -hmm. on the other side, the quote unquote regular teachers who are just teaching the content and maybe monolingual. Is that the term? Yes. yes. Actually, look at yes. you. Yeah, yeah. So they, <laughs> they, may, they may be monolingual English speakers. They are at least taught the awareness that their audience does not include exclusively English speaking students or English as a first language. And that's like a elevating of awareness and best case, they're able to partner more effectively, yeah. work together. And then I imagine there's also uh, an administrative facing component to what you're doing where folks who are responsible at a school or a district level or even a state level, this has got to be a challenging set mm. of responsibilities that they have to figure out mm -hmm. how do I develop a program? How do I implement it in a way that makes sense? And that's ultimately where those folks would be reaching out to you to help understand how do we solve this problem and then implement the programs to help your educators. That's exactly right. We're working in one district right now who requested a program review. We submit what are called LAO plans, which basically is the English learner education plan on a variety of aspects. So I look over that for them. But a lot of what you're talking about, we focus on deeply, which is really this parity around like that shared responsibility and shared ownership of students and trying to get ahead of what I love to call the misses, right? The misconceptions, the miscommunications, you know, the misunderstandings that teacher to teacher, administrator to teacher have when their roles are not clear. I think effective collaboration is something that is not necessarily explicitly addressed in education or exhaustively addressed or practiced. Mm -hmm. And this goes well beyond the field of multilingual learner education. To your point, siloing exists in social emotional learning, right? Yes. When that's something that naturally needs to exist in all spaces, right? Special education in our specialties, right, where there are so many places where effective collaboration could actually put us sort of together as gears in a system that really do line up well. Yeah. And it reminds me also of the idea of inclusion, which I know is yes. very central to a lot of what you're talking about here. How do you build a, a genuinely inclusive classroom and then an inclusive model of your teaching and learning culture so that folks feel like they have an equal seat at the table. And in particular, for the population you're describing, I don't know if you have any of this handy, but this is a growing population. It's also a place where, you know, as we look at immigration policies and, you know, refugees and a lot of the other issues that arise in the collective consciousness, a lot of this stuff is growing and is increasingly relevant to folks who are trying to administer and teach. You're primarily focused on K-12, but it's also an issue with adult learners. Is there any way to kind of size up what's going on here and look at any of the broader trend lines around this population? Absolutely. Our population of English learners in the K-12 system nationally are growing. And we are also seeing an uptick in the number of newcomers. And so we have a lot of students coming in, and I imagine a lot of your listeners have seen this in their own communities, students coming in as refugees, officially or unofficially. And there's a lot of global movement happening, as you can imagine, from all parts, Central America, Europe, Asia, Africa, we're seeing it in all parts. 
That said, I think that idea that we're seeing more multilingualism and multiculturalism in all spaces is really important to recognize. One of the trends we're seeing in just the workforce in general is a want to diversify hiring. And this is a really a wonderful intention that many school systems, districts, companies have put out. However, without that deeper understanding of what it means to truly be inclusive. So diversity is one aspect. Look at the DEIJ initials. Diversity is one aspect there. But really training people on how to include and how to become an inclusive environment is what's going to retain. You know, and we have a retention issue writ large, I would say, right now in terms of workforce. And we can do harm if we make an initiative to hire multilingual, multicultural individuals, and then we don't support their success. Mm -hmm. So that is an area that I think is growing a lot and, and needs our attention. Yeah. And the related letter in these acronyms is the B for belonging and the sense that the students actually feel connected to the class. One thing that I've heard a lot about, and I'd love to get a little more of your perspective on, is students who are really the only English language speaker in their families and mm -hmm. how that relationship goes. Because one trend we've seen a lot, particularly since the pandemic, is how much parents have been pulled into the educational journey of their children, parents and caregivers, in ways mm -hmm. that we hadn't really seen before. And I imagine there's a level of sensitivity. This all ties to cultural sensitivity as well, which is another mm -hmm. massive trend that I'm sure you have a lot of experience with. But what's it like trying to help teachers understand how to reach the students, but then also connect to families and cultures that may be different from what they're used to? Yeah. So Dr. Zaretta Hammond, who wrote Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, often talks about this concept of widening your aperture. When we see a situation, we are fast processors, especially educators, right? We're thinkers, we're learners, and our brain typically kind of automatically goes straight past observation to evaluation. And so if we see that a parent is not supporting a student with their homework at home, for example, or their online learning, our brain very quickly and very naturally can go to judging that against our own cultural norm mm. and what we know, right? And so if you think of the brain as the hardware, the culture is the software. Mm. We've all been loaded with a different culture. And we're not necessarily aware of that deeper layer of culture. But that information that this parent is not involved is causing us to draw an evaluative conclusion about whether or not they care about education, mm -hmm. their interest, their level of support. Yep. And so by widening that aperture, what we're really doing is pressing a pause at the observation level and saying, what could this mean? Because in reality, that could mean a variety of things. You brought up one important point. Oftentimes parents, they may have a different work calendar that's not enabling them to be there at the time that they were asked to be there. They may not have the technological skills, the linguistic skills, or they may have those skills, but it may not be kind of their norm to be that involved in education because that may not be what the system looked like from which they grew out of, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So having that ability to sort of understand that there may be a different explanation here is really key. 
And I often recommend a practice called listening interviews. And listening is really the start. Thinking of parent connection, not as delivery of information, but as partnership and really positioning ourselves as educators, as seekers of information from parents, really valuing that they hold a wealth of knowledge about their children, about their world. They believe in supporting what's best for their children. Yeah, makes sense. You know, the terms empathy and grace have been ones that I've been talking about. Mm -hmm. My guests have been bringing to my attention over the last three years, really, you know, as we've gone through all the challenges of the pandemic and to your your own origin story where you understood what it felt like to be the outsider in terms of the language in mm -hmm. your experiences in Chile, you know, that is very much what students, but also their families are experiencing as they're trying to, you know, become part of the culture as much as they can, but then also ideally equip their children with the tools they need to succeed down the road. You also mentioned technology, you know, we're a trend spotting podcast, where's the new hotness? You know, there's a lot of really interesting language learning tools, whether it's Duolingo or, you know, Zoom rooms that are connecting classrooms across the globe. Anything you're noticing in that space over the last few years, it does feel like there's been maybe some widening of the aperture on that front as well that is opening up some potential. And then obviously, you know, technology is not a silver bullet and frequently it brings its own challenges. I'd be really curious from your perspective as an expert in this domain, how are you thinking about technology? What do you see as the upside and maybe some of the potential risk there? Yeah, there are both for sure. What I'm seeing are school districts with whom I'm working are starting to question, or not question, maybe it's about building empathy for themselves, right? And allowing, allowing space to say, is how we're doing this, how we should continue to do this? And around technology, that becomes a big question, especially when we talk about communicating with families. So oftentimes, we establish as a district a communication protocol, right? We only communicate via email, mm -hmm. and then we also provide voice phone calls when there's an emergency via this, you know, calling platform. Sometimes that's done to just simplify things so that they can get everyone on the same page, you know, and then we provide translation. Now, translation is wonderful, but translation is not always the only answer in terms of reaching out to families. We have to ask ourselves, who do we serve? Are the families here to align with how the school does business or are the schools here to reflect the communities they serve? Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of our schools were set up to reflect the original community when, when they were built and that community has evolved, right? So we need to respond. Mm -hmm. So in terms of technology, this is one area where we've seen a lot of opportunity for meeting parents and families where they are. There are a lot of texting apps. Talking Points is one example that will actually lean into the phone-based culture of many immigrant families. So you can imagine if you're coming over from another country, you may not actually have, depending on whether or not their job is computer-facing, access to an email platform can be more challenging and just cultural kind of preferences, right? Mm -hmm. So those apps, actually, the teacher or administrator, the educator can send the message in English, and the parent can receive the message in the language that they prefer. Mm -hmm. And they have many. So the technology there is incredible. I send it in English. 
you know, you receive it in Arabic. You respond in Arabic. I receive it in English. Mm-hmm. So I really love that technology. That said, you asked about pitfalls. You know, machine translation has come so far since I started over 20 years ago. You know, you used to be that if you Google Translate, it's something you really had to look out. You know, now there are so many incredible platforms and most of the time they do a great job. But it is a pitfall to rely on the machines. We do need human contact. And sometimes we utilize those machines or those translation efforts to sort of create a divide unintentionally between ourselves and those families. So I recommend if you're using even a human interpreter for a phone call, get on the phone too and have the interpreter there as the intermediary. Don't say to the interpreter or the liaison in your building, please call home and tell them that, you know, Johnny's not behaving and la, 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 because there's going to be follow-up questions and you want to be the one to build that relationship. And it's all about finding those real human connections, utilizing the technology as an additive tool and not a replacement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking to it, it made me think of the paralinguistic element to communication, you know, signaling that you're listening and actually mm-hmm. intoning your voice in a way that is empathetic. You piqued my interest when you talked about the neurolinguistics that you studied. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is about building that foundation of trust and connection, psychological safety and empathy. Without that foundation, you can't really build meaningful learning systems. Is that something that you have experience with? Is there any insight you could share with us about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Brain science is just is a love of mine. And I really took a deep dive into that. If anyone's looking for a fabulous book, I would read The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by yes. Oliver Sacks. Have you read that? Mm-hmm. It just really shows you, you know, all of these potential ways that the brain can miswire, which reveals what the brain actually does. Mm -hmm. But one of the pieces that you brought up is so important is this relationship between trust and learning. And our culture is designed to keep us safe, to keep the world predictable. And when we work across cultures, then the things that we would naturally predict to happen may look different because behaviors are trend differently, right? And they develop differently. There's no right one or wrong one. However, you know, if for efficiency's sake, our brain has decided that this one is right. And the danger of that is that when you see someone responding through the lens of a different cultural programming, Mm -hmm. that sort of reptilian brain, as they call it, that lower level brain can really get on alert. It's like a bot scanning for some kind of a threat. And when that bot says, oh, threat detected, then it shuts those steel doors of learning down. Mm. And the other piece, that next level brain, the limbic system, is the place where both our emotions and our memory systems are housed. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a beautiful connection. And it shows you just how important emotional regulation, trust, all of those pieces are to facilitate learning. Mm -hmm. And if we can't get through those, we don't ever get to that neocortex, which is that human capacity for intellect and where the real learning and evaluating and analysis can happen. Hmm. All of this, when we talk about students who we want students to listen, right? If they would listen, 
then they would, you know, be able to learn. Well, what we know from the brain is that you, we comply, we listen for two reasons, connection or fear. Mm. You know, so teachers, parents, right? <laughs> you know, anyone, coworkers, colleagues, right? We have two choices. And you can think of an example, I'm sure, with your own child, right? If you want your child to listen, they're going to do that either because they feel connected or they feel fearful mm. of a pot potential consequence. Mm -hmm. We're wired for connection, so mm. we, we can lean into that. But we just have to understand that, you know, when we're programmed differently with our own different culture and language, it takes a bit of empathy in order to recognize it may look differently. Yeah, and some intention to seek out that difference and not immediately assimilate it, more seek it out so that you can understand it and welcome it. A lot of really interesting connections between this space and the DEI and inclusive leadership, a lot of that stuff that is also very much an emerging trend. We're going to have to have you back on the show because a lot of this stuff is super interesting, especially the brain connection, yeah. you know, that in and of itself, I think would be worth some follow-up. But as we're getting closer to concluding this conversation, are there any other emerging trends, anything out there in the world around you that you're noticing that our, our listeners might benefit from? And keep in mind, it's a pretty wide cross-section of listeners. They may not be deep into the world of English language learning, but I think there's a lot that we all can draw from by understanding your experience a little bit better. What's out there in the world that's capturing your attention? So one of the pieces capturing my attention is this tendency towards mapping different skill sets towards our own field, right? Mm -hmm. So well, a lot of what we're seeing is that the world exists in patterns. And when I look at, for example, I had a great conversation with a mental health educator recently. We were talking about their framework for the Castle Competencies for Social Emotional Learning. Sure. And by understanding those competencies, I actually dug in more deeply to my own framework for learning within the multilingual learner education. And so I think this de-siloing is really something that's starting to strengthen all of our systems. And it maps really well to this concept of bringing and accepting multilingual learners, multiculturalism into schools. This concept that we're stronger for our diversity is building and we're seeing it in real ways. We're seeing the tech fields understanding the health fields better. It's happening with TED Talks, right? We're all sort of like mini experts, you know, living bridges right. you know, in all of these like great areas. But what that's doing is causing us to be able to kind of map analogs to our own areas of expertise and perhaps shed new light on how we can approach problems and solve them. Yeah, that's great. I really like that answer. You got meta, but in a good way. I do. It's uh, my thing. <laughs> it's all good. It works really in both directions where when you get outside of your lane, you're exposing others to that deeper domain knowledge. They can find insights. And also when you start to find that the same things are relevant across the silos, those are the macro trends. Those are the aha moments where you can really see both empathy and meaningful innovation and breakthroughs right. happen where you're like, oh, just take this from over here, apply it over there, mm -hmm. bada bing, bada boom. Hopefully something new emerges. Amazing stuff. We've been talking with Dana Gastic-French, who's the founder and CEO of Upriver Education. It's been wonderful having you on the show. As we conclude, I always like to give my guests a chance for some takeaways so that as folks head back to their lives, they have a few morsels 
of <laughs> knowledge to chew on as they go back to their everyday. What are some takeaways based on the conversation that we've had today? Effective collaboration matters. We have talked a lot about working, of course, to be inclusive and across silos. And that can look at the micro level that's students within a classroom or different fields within different industries. Evaluating oneself with empathy around how effectively am I working? How collaborative am I? Mm -hmm. That is an area that I think is required, that self-reflection around that area. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece for me is really writing down your role and getting really clear on your own personal goals in terms of your work or your life, whatever it is, in whatever structure you're existing. And then speaking that out loud with others and recognizing that we want difference in roles. I want an ESL teacher to have a different job than a content classroom teacher so that we can gear together and propel forward. I want to have a different job in my family than my children. There are none that are more important. I think this concept of equity needs to recognize and expect difference. Yeah, deep stuff. We will continue the conversation in subsequent appearances. The website is uprivereducation.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn as Dana Gastic French or Instagram at Upriver Education. Awesome. We learned about multilingual learners and a whole lot more. Thanks so much to you, Dana, for joining us on today's show. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please write us a review, share the good word, tell your friends. This is Trending in Education. 